Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. Second Corinthians seven. Actually, 2 Corinthians seven one goes with what? Six eighteen. Having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Let's think about verse one there for a few minutes. If I love God, I want to be like Him, right? If I want to be like God, what must I do personally? Avoid sin. Avoid sin. One of, one of the great heresies that floats around Christianity today is that, look, you know, you're forgiven. God's forgiven you. It doesn't matter if you sin. After all, he's forgiven you anyhow. Listen, that, that's... That's like say, that's like marrying your wife saying, look, you know, I've had girlfriends before I met you. I'm going to have them after I met you. Don't worry about it. You know, right? Yeah. I mean, there's an exclusivity to love. If I love God, I'm not going to want to do things contrary to his nature. And not only that, listen, I don't want to do anything that cause grief to God. You know, there's a few things I can do that, that causes Donna to have pain. It hurts her. If I do them, do I want to be doing those things? If I love her? No. If you love God, you're not going to want to do that, which brings him dishonor, which brings him sadness, which hurts. And, and what brings God sadness? Selfishness, sin, pride. Those, brings, those do not bring God joy. They bring God sadness. Therefore, I don't want to do them. And see, see here's, here's where it, this, this is where Judaism missed it. It's not about a list. It isn't. That, that's the simple, you know, God did not, you did not become a Christian. God say, okay, here's the list of things you do. All right. Well, God says, love me. Because if you love me, the list will take care of itself. Yeah. And God says, here are the things that bring grief to my heart. Do you want to do those things? No. Shouldn't. And that's what Paul's trying to get at here. You love God, you separate from those things that bring God sadness. You separate from that which hurts God. And realize this, sin is not the violation of a rule, it's the violation of a relationship. That's what sin is. It's violating my relationship with God. Now bring a whole new meaning to what does it mean to sin. Paul's saying, because we have these promises, what's that? The promise that God says, I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters. Because of that promise that we have of a relationship with God, what should we want to do? We should want to cleanse ourselves from sin. And it says perfecting holiness. What is holiness? 
What does it mean to be holy? Separate. The Hebrew word is kadosh, which means to cut. What do you do when you cut something? When you separate two pieces of something? Holiness means to cut, to separate. God says, says don't be like them, be like me. Now, if you want to think about it, think, think about standing out over this great chasm on a bridge. And you've got God on one side and you've got the world on the other. What are your choices? Well, you can't. You can jump, but assuming you don't want to jump, what choices do you have? You can go to one or you can go to the other, right? Can you go to both? You're on the bridge. And I can either go towards the world or I can go towards God. But if I go towards the world, what am I doing? I'm going away from God. If I go towards God, I'm going away from the world. Folks, understand this as a Christian. You can't have it both ways. You get one or the other. You want God, fine. You can't have the world. If you want the world, okay, but you can't have God. What do you want? Do you really want to love something that is against everything that God is for? You really want to do that? What's the world's attitude towards God? Mocking attitude, rejection, hatred. It's a hatred. It's a rejection of God. You want to be part of that? You want to love that which God hates? Not only that, what did God have to do to take care of your sin problem? He had to die, right? You want to, you want to engage in something that killed God? Is that what you really want to do? That's what Paul's talking about here. Because of God's promises, because of what God has done, hate the world. Hate sin. Stay away from it. And it says perfecting holiness in the fear of God. What makes you holy? Be fearful of God. This is not quaking in his presence in abject terror. It means understanding God's holiness and our, our comparison to it. Holy means to be separate. No, there's two, that's two separate things. So this verse is talking about separate? Yes. Yeah. Sometimes holy means to represent Holiness can represent purity. Yeah. Technically, righteousness, what is righteousness? Righteousness is what God does. No. Two separate concepts. God is holy. In what sense is God is holy? Yeah, he's utterly separate from everything else. That's what holiness means. God is completely separate from and distinct from all that is created. He is utterly unlike anything you can think of. All right, he is separate from sin. All right. And that's what holiness means. Righteousness is what God does. And understand, 
Righteousness is what God does. God does not do it because it's righteous. Okay? If God did something because it's righteous, where does the definition of righteousness exist? Outside of God. That's not the way it works. It's right because God does it. By definition, what God does is right. By definition. You say, well, I don't think it's right. Well, that's because you're all messed up. Right? God does it because it's just. You know, some people, when we talk about this whole concept of predestination election, people say, well, that's not fair. Well, yeah, it is fair, right? By definition, if God does it, it's right and it's fair and it's just. Just because it doesn't fit our definition doesn't detract from it being right because God is the definition of that. Now, it is true that as if I am holy, then I'm acting like God. That is true. But really, they're two separate concepts. All right? Being holy means I'm separate from sin. I'm going to take myself away from sin. I'm not going to tolerate sin in my life. I don't want to be like the world. Humanly, it isn't. But can, 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 in, can in essence, we, we work towards that? Sure we can. Yeah, there's an effort. The whole point, here's the whole point. There's no way any one of us in here is going to be perfectly righteous or perfectly holy. And, you know, all the good intentions in the world will not keep us from committing a sin. But what should our attitude be? What should our direction be? What should our desire be? To please God. My desire is to please my wife. Do I always succeed? No. I think that's why but I desire it. We're talking about okay, Oscar King is going on. Yes. Yeah, not this is uh, You're not going to read perfect. Yeah, and that's one. That's one of the things people say. Well, you can get to the point in your life where you never sin and you're perfectly holy. Well, they, you know, that's only if you're a vegetable in a in a hospital being fed through your veins, you know, intravenously. And all of us are going to sin. But as we mature in our Christian life, the frequency of sin should do what? We go down. And why is that? Because we love God more and more and more. And a way to do it is to love God. All right? It's, you know, it's taken me 40 years to figure this out. I have to tell you that. I'm dense. You know, if I need to go from point A to B, all right, how can I do that? Well, I get directions to go from A to B. Or I can say, well, I don't go this way, or I don't go that way, or I don't go that way, or I don't. Now, there's billions of ways not to do it, right? What's easier? Don't do this. Don't do that. If you want to be holy, don't do this. Don't do that. 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 Or is it easier to say, well, just do this. If you love God, the don'ts will take care of itself. Right? Or you can spend the rest of your life trying to figure out what not to do. (laughs) Look, it's easier, folks, just say to love God. Pursue holiness. And, And all this other stuff will drop off as time goes on. That's the easier way to do it. 
Now, in the, in the next section here, Paul talks about their repentance because they did open their hearts to Paul. He said, open your hearts to us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have cheated no one. Paul says, listen, I have done nothing to harm you. And what was he being accused of? Well, all these things. What's the idea of wronging someone? Well, taking advantage of them. Did Paul take advantage of the Corinthians? Well, no. He determined there was nothing among them except Christ and him crucified. And how did Paul work among them? Did he take a salary from the Corinthians? No. He worked hard, right? We've cheated no one. We, we, we've, not, we've not deceived anyone by cheating them out of money. Now, that'll eliminate most of your people on TV today, right? Most of your TV preachers. I'm sorry, I have a very bad taste about a lot of them. Why? They're shysters. They're hucksters. They do. I remember seeing one, I don't know if you ever heard of Larry Lee. He's, he's one of these guys on TBN. And uh, I guess his house burned down. It showed about him, you know, walking through his house and all. I told you this charred remains and teary and all that, trying to raise money to rebuild his house. What he didn't tell you, that was his vacation home that burned down. His other mansion was still standing just fine. It was a vacation home that burned down. See? I, yeah, right. That's right. That's how you know he's found that they're making mockery of him. And they're doing it. I mean, who watches TV? Everybody. And you know what? It, and to me, if somebody says, tell me, a, you know, give me an example of God's grace. I said, well, let's see, Bob Tilton, Larry Lee, Kenneth Copeland. <laughs> Actually, if you stop and think about it more soberly, if you want an example of God's grace, what should it be? Yourself. Me. <laughs> I'm the one that. Yeah. You want God's grace here. Yeah. Look. The, the whole folk. Yeah, the whole thing is Paul saying, I didn't cheat anyone. I didn't lie to anyone. I didn't take advantage of anyone. You know that, folks. He's trying to bring them back to what they remember. He said, you, you know what I was like when I was there. He said, I do not say this condemned, for I've said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Paul says, I'm not, I'm not saying this to condemn you, to... to to, to rail on you, I love you so much. I care for you guys so much that it grieves me to think that you would think that I would do anything to hurt you, to take advantage of you. I'm just, I'm just looking. Paul saying you going through all this to, to defend this um, when he's preaching that you know he saw the, the false teachers and stuff. Mm -hmm. Out to them. He is. This is the most personal of Paul's epistles. And Paul, I think, wrote this reluctantly, but he's just saying, I, you know, I love you guys so much, you know how I've acted among you guys. You know that I didn't cheat anyone. You know that I didn't lie. When some guy comes in and tells you that I've taken advantage of you, you should know better. You should know better. You know? He says, I love you people. And even though you've caused me a tremendous amount of pain, I love you guys. My heart is wide open to you. I care. Who's we? I think it's an editorial we. It would certainly be 
with Paul and his companions. You know, because Paul ministered with Titus and Timothy there. In fact, Titus is talked about in a little bit. And Titus was one of Paul's true sons in the faith. And, you know, quite honestly, if Timothy and Titus loved Paul and Paul was grieved, what would they feel? Grief. Yeah. And Paul saying, Great is my boldness, peace towards you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. And filled with comfort, I am exceedingly joyful in all our tribulation. <coughs> Paul said, I say good things about you guys. You may say bad things about me, but, you know, I don't. I brag about you. I love you guys. Great is my speech towards you. I, I'm always saying good things about you. And when I think of you, I'm, I'm filled with comfort. And even though I'm going through tribulation and the trial, I still love you guys. For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. But we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts, inside were fears. Nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you when he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. What evidently was going on here is that Paul was, Paul was headed down to Corinth to talk to them. It was one of those things. You ever have one of those things where you need to go to talk to someone and confront them and deal with a very difficult thing? How do you feel? Yeah, you don't want to. And evidently, as Paul was on his way, who showed up? Titus. And now, where did they? Where did Paul find Titus? Macedonia. Well, how? Why, why Macedonia? It was on the route to Corinth, right? Okay. So Titus is coming up from Corinth. Paul meets him in Macedonia. What is Titus telling? Yeah, the church was really... Well, not only church, but he said, you know, the church was really... They're really sorry, Paul, for the way they treated you. They're sad about their actions. They... They're sorrowful over the over what they thought about you. Um, and why were they sorrowful? Well, what had Paul written in between First and Second Corinthians? Surely. Another letter, the severe letter. And in the severe letter, what did he do? He 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 did the thing that fathers have to do. You know, son, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. Um, he had to confront him. They changed. Yeah. Yes. Paul was comforted. Yeah. You know, I've had this experience. I had a friend of mine that that really got into a pattern of of, of really bad behavior, irresponsibility, and uh, I had I confronted him. That was a hard thing for me to do. I. I hated that. I didn't want to really deal with it. But he's my best friend. you got to do that, right? I mean, what are friends for? And uh, in my case, it didn't work out this way. In my case, I became the evil, critical, judgmental, harsh, unforgiving. Yeah. 
know it all person. And I, I, it was hard. It was hard because I, I, I had his best interests in mind. And I struggled for many years. And what's interesting is I look back on it. I've had many people who have not even known me and known the history of me. And this guy come up and say, boy, I met this guy. And, man, he's really messed up. I said, well, who is he? And they tell me, oh, man. And I, in, in my heart, I say, well, okay, I, I'm not totally out to lunch on this thing here, you know. But it's think about it. Have you ever had to do that? To someone. We've had, you know, something really needed to be done. You needed to confront an issue of sin. And, and, and sort of on your way to dealing with that, that person says, you know, I've been convicted over my sin and I've repented. And how, how would you feel? How would you feel? You'd feel relieved, wouldn't you? Why? Well, not only because you don't have to confront, but because you rejoice in what? In their repentance, their restoration. That's what you see here with Paul. Paul was sitting here thinking, you know what? Everything I've worked for in Corinth is coming unraveled by these false teachers. They're going to destroy the church. They're going to destroy people that I love and I've poured my heart into and I've sacrificed for. They're going to destroy the work of God down there. And Paul was compelled to come and deal with this thing. He sent a severe letter on ahead, and now he's coming right after it. And as he's on his way to deal with this thing, Titus shows up and gives him a report that the church had received extremely positively the letter, had dealt with the issues, and had dealt with those who were causing division. And Paul says, I rejoice. I rejoice. Why? Not not because you gotta understand here something. This is not Paul with some ego trip. You gotta really get that. This is not Paul upset at Corinth because they offended Paul. Because they insulted Paul. That's Paul could have cared less about that. That was not the issue. The issue was grander. The issue was the fact that they, that in discrediting Paul, they were discrediting the message that Paul preached. And the message Paul preached of grace was being supplanted by a message that did not lead to salvation. It was a false message. And Paul was grieved that people would be led astray by error. It had nothing to do with some personal vendetta. And that's one of the things, folks, that's hard for us that, you know, we've got to just learn to divorce ourselves from. Don't take things personally. So did Paul end up, did he cancel his trip then, McRae? Didn't have to go. Didn't have to go. That's all it is. Yeah. Didn't have to go. Because why would he be going into Macedonia? Well, the only reason to go into Macedonia was you're on your way to Corinth. Because that's the way you went. All right. Remember, you go to Troas, Ephesus, you go to Troas. Troas, you take the boat over to Neapolis. You go up to Thessalonica, and you work your way down the Great Roman Road. Go down to Berea, Athens, down into Corinth. And he met Titus on his way back. He said here, listen, and not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you, when he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so I rejoice even more. 
Paul says, when I heard that you guys felt really bad about listening to these false prophets, he said, I rejoiced. Why? Because Paul loved them. Paul loved them. When I remember back to my friend, you know, one of the, one of the things that um, that I still I still bothers me today is that he's not my friend. That bothers me. It really does. Yeah. And uh, I wish we were. And I can honestly say that that uh, the problem, as far as I can tell humanly, it's not that I'm unwilling to be reconciled to him. But I can't be reconciled on his terms, which says, let's just forget all of the stuff and let me continue in my own patterns of irresponsibility. And don't don't be critical of me. Don't see see in his mind the greatest Christian virtue was to not judge. Well, if you love someone, you see them doing something that's going to hurt them. What do you do? No. Yeah, because you love them. You don't want to see them hurt. And I'd love to be reconciled to him. If he walked in the door right now, said, Alan, I'm sorry, I, you're right. Not that I'm right personally, but what you told me about what God said, you're right about what God said. You're right about the scripture. You're right about this. I'd be one of the, I, I, I wouldn't sleep all night. Yeah. 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 I hope so. You know. But but I you know I I can relate a little bit with Paul on a very little 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 scale, the pain that when you lose someone that that you minister to you know the other guy that I ministered to with in this church that divorced his wife and married someone else and uh, you know it's like what happened is it is it that I'm not willing to be reconciled to him well no of course I'm willing to be reconciled to him I would do it in a heartbeat but it's got to be done on what on truth. Reconciliation has to be done on truth. If, if, if my relationship with that man was lost because of his patterns of sin, he has to acknowledge his sin. It, won't, it can't be business as usual. It's the same thing with God, right? You don't come to God and say, well, God, let's just, let's just forget about all these sins I've done. Let's just sort of forget about that. No. <laughs> it doesn't work that way, right? And Paul here is rejoicing because these people... They responded so positively to the letter that he wrote. For say, for even if I made you sorry with my letter, I don't regret it, though I did regret it. Say, what's what's wrong with you? you? Got a schizo there? You know, you what's wrong? What do you mean? Well, Paul's saying, I don't regret that I did it, although I regret I had to do it. Does that make any sense? If you have to severely discipline one of your children for something, you regret it, but you don't regret it. But the letter makes a remedy. Yeah. Just like prescription. First time they think, you know, yeah. medicine is not sweet, but later, you know, they yeah. recover, you know. And that's what Paul is saying. It, it hurt me to write it. I regret having to write it, but I don't regret writing it. 
And, and we can relate to that. <coughs> for I perceive that in the same epistle made you sorry that only for a while. Paul said, I made you sorry, but your sorriness led to your repentance and the restoration of the relationship I have with you guys because I care so much about you. Paul had poured his entire life into this church. And to see them abandon the message of the gospel and abandon him and go off after false teachers who were leading them astray brought great sorry, sorrow to his heart. He was probably smoking hot. Now I rejoice. Not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. Folks, one of the things that we are required to do, it's not an option. Well, we need to repent. That's one. But, but when you see somebody overtaken in a fault, what are you to do? Go on. That is not an option. It's not an option. You do it. All right. And when they respond positively to the word of God and repent of their sin, that brings joy and gladness to your heart. That's what Paul's talking about here. And there should be a holy reluctance to do that. You don't want to get to the point where you enjoy beating people on the head with the Bible. You know, there's some people who just love to do that. You love to take, you know, the big MacArthur hardback and just pound on you. You know, that's not what Paul is talking about here. Even when you confront, there's a reluctance to confront because you hate to have to do it. It's a sorrowful thing to do. But when the person responds and, and they repent and, and, and they turn back to God and, and repent of their sin, you get great joy out of seeing repentance. Pardon? Yes. Yeah. Here's the other thing. Um, what brings God joy? What brings God joy? Yep. You want to get the heart of God? Go, go look at, you know, Luke. When the son came back, what did the father do? He rejoiced. When the lost sheep was found, what did the shepherd do? Rejoice. When the lady found her lost coin, what did she do? She threw a party. When the lost sinner comes home, what does God do? God rejoices. Yeah, but listen, it brings God joy. So what should bring, if you know something that brings God really a lot of joy, what should you want to do? Be part of it, right? Yeah, First Corinthians or First Thessalonians five. Rejoice in all things, but the thing that brings God joy is sinners who repent. Yeah. 
And that's what Paul is saying here. When the Corinthian church repented of their sinful behavior, it brought Paul joy. There's rejoicing. For you may you were made sorrow in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. What is that talking about? There are two kinds of sorrow. What does true sorrow produce? Change. Repentance. Change. What does the false sorrow produce? Guilt. Guilt. Guilt is being taught. Why, do, why, why is America, why is the number one prescribed drug in America, what, Valium? Uh, whatever it is. It's one of those. Vi probably right behind Viagra, I guess. What is, what is, why is it that America is a, is a nation on drugs? Guilt. 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 And the way you get rid of guilt is you do it until it doesn't hurt anymore, or you tell yourself it's okay. Everybody's doing it. Who's the, who's the number one primo example of this verse in the Bible? Judas. Judas. Don't be afraid. Speak up. Judas. Right? Was Judas sorry? Yeah. Well, yeah, he was, right? But what did his sorrow produce? Yeah. Despair and suicide. Yeah. It didn't produce repentance. Paul's saying, I'm glad you were... You were Sorrowful with a godly sorrow that leads to repentance, which then leads to forgiveness, salvation. Instead of the sorrow which is the world, which what leads to death. You just feel bad about it, but you don't change. For observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, vehement desire, what zeal... What vindication and all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. How, and here's the point. Here, here, how do you tell if someone is truly repented? They've changed. They've changed. There may be a lot of crying. Paul's saying your repentance is, is true repentance. Why? Because of your zeal, your fervent change. The, the fact that you did a 180, that you weren't going this way, now you're going that way. Look, folks, don't let anybody give you this guff that says that you can become a Christian and have no change in your life. Take Jesus as your Savior. We'll worry about the Lordship and the obedience stuff and all that. That'll come later. Right now, just get out of hell. Folks, listen, the God that saves you transforms you. God did not save you so you can just go out and play in the, sin of, the mud of sin and it doesn't matter. God saved you to make you holy. And when you look at someone who comes to the Lord, you know, there may be crying, there may be, you know, um, contrition there, there may be a great deal of emotion, but what really sets them apart is if their life is different. And how do you tell if their life is different? Because they've changed over time. They're no longer the same thing they used to be. How do I know I'm a Christian? I'm different. I'm not what I used to be. I'm not what I should be, but I'm not what I used to be. And that is nothing but God's grace. Paul's saying, you know, what brought me joy is not only your repentance, 
but the fruits of repentance. And, that, and there's something to be said for that. Remember when John the Baptist, when, when somebody came up and he was talking about the fruits of repentance, he said, well, I'll tell you what, if he asks you to go with a mile, go with him too. If he wants your coat, give him your cloak also. You know, uh, go the extra mile. Do the extra. Go farther. Just don't. In other words, the soldiers, what do you do? Well, be content with your wages. Tax collectors, what do you do? Don't take anything that's not yours. Be fair. Folks, you know, if you say you're a Christian, your life ought to match it. It's not that you're perfect. But I've seen them come and go in the church. You know, I've been around the church 40 years now, and I've seen them come in the front door, stick around, and head out the back. And say, well, what happened to so-and-so? Oh, they're a Buddhist now. Yeah, what happened to them? Oh, they're in a homosexuality now. What happened to them? Well, they're a drunk at, drug addict now. What about so-and-so? Oh, they haven't been to church in 30 years. But they're Christian. I remember when he went forward through the pine cone in the fire and said they loved the Jesus at, at Camp Patmos. That doesn't mean anything. Absolutely. They went out from us because they were not of us. Yeah. Folks, salvation produces change. Paul says your repentance produced a change in you. And because of that, I rejoice. Therefore, although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong, nor for the sake of him who had suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. Paul says, I didn't do this on some personal vendetta. I did it because I wanted you to realize how much I cared for you. How much I want to see the best for you. Yeah. Yeah, this is reconciliation that's happened. You know, and how do we reconcile to God? We look God in the eye and we say, it's my fault. It's not your fault, God. I, I messed up. I'm a sinner. You didn't do anything wrong. I did. It's an open acknowledgement of our sin. It's, it's a realization that it, it is my fault. Because until you realize it's your fault, God can't forgive you for something that you don't think you did, right? And that's what Paul's telling them. They acknowledge what they did. And Paul's forgiveness was there all along. And he rejoiced that the relationship is restored. Therefore, we have been comforted in your comfort. Paul is saying, I was on my way to do something I didn't want to do. And he said, the relief of hearing of your repentance and change brought me so much joy and release and comfort. And we rejoiced exceedingly more for the joy of Titus because his spirit was refreshed. Not only did I was comforted by that, but Timothy was just walking on air. 
and I rejoiced in his joy. Love rejoices in the truth. We, we, we should rejoice in holiness. We should rejoice with those who honor God. And, and when something good happens to them, we should have joy too. And when the sinner comes to Christ, how do you feel about that? you feel joy and happiness? Well, that's what bring God that's what brings God joy. For if anything I have boasted to him about you, I am not ashamed. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, even so our boasting to Titus was true. Paul says, I boasted to you of Titus. And you know what? I was honest with you and I was honest with Titus. My boasting was genuine. My boasting was genuine. And his affections are greater for you as he remembers the obedience of you all, how with fear and trembling you received him. Therefore, I rejoice that I have confidence in you and everything. Paul saying Timothy, or not Timothy, Titus was just overcome with the reception that you gave him. And he rejoiced in your turning from the false teachers and you're turning back to the truth. You're turning back to the message of the gospel. And that brought him great joy. And it's like Paul and Timothy, or, or Paul, and I keep saying Timothy, but Paul and Titus are just dancing when they see each other, just, just rejoicing. It's like Paul, you know, he sees T Titus coming at him in a distance from Corinth, and he's all, oh, what's going on? And, and Titus is walking around with this big, grand old smile on his face, and it just, you know, the release that just, and relief that just washes over Paul, just, Brings great joy to his heart. Yeah, they, they work together. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the church of Macedonia that in a great trial affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. One of the things that Paul is doing on his third missionary journey is what? Collecting a collection for the saints in Jerusalem. Um, this was not to build Paul's uh, summer home. Nor was it to buy the gold-plated chariot that he saw in the marketplace at Ephesus or all those other assorted things that the guys on TBN seemed to go after. Rather, it was for the saints in Jerusalem. 100% of it. For their ministry. For their help. And he's talking about the churches of Macedonia. That out of their deep poverty. What did they do? They overflowed with liberality. What does that mean? They gave beyond their means. Oh, I know. We're missing that other lady there. Yeah. Missing two. Um, yeah. She's the one that asked about the, the tithing business last week. Uh, we're going to talk about giving now. She's missing it, but she'll get on the CD, I guess. Um, did, what, what did these churches do in Macedonia? Did they give their tithe to Paul? No. They overflowed with liberality. See, we have this idea 
And I hate to say it, we're all victims of this, even I am, to my shame. The idea that the more we have, the more we give God. Is that true? We have this concept that the more we have, the more we give God. Is that true? No. No. We have this idea that, you know, if I only had more, I could give God more. The most generous people in America are the ones that don't have it. They're the most generous. How generous are you? Do you have what you need? Now, one of the things, you know, we got to balance You know, everything in life is a balancing act, right? We are to be good stewards of what God has given us. And God has called us to save money, right? He didn't say, you know, give away every dime and live in a shack and eat bread and water, you know, and wear rags. Um, he didn't say that. But we are to be generous. We are to live within our means. All right. Um, and what you give God is not as much based on how much you have. It's on your attitude towards him. Right. It's what you. God, God does not expect you to give him what you don't have. He expects you to give him what you have, what you can, what God has granted to you. And sometimes there's a sacrifice to that. I'm sorry? Um, it encompasses, I think, all things. Um, your time, your talent, your treasure, I've heard. Um, that's probably a good way to break it down. Um, you give God, you donate God whatever you can. If you love God, if you love someone, what do you do? You give them things, right? I think I forget the scripture that I don't know what better giving than it's better to give than to receive. Yeah. The whole point, if I love my wife, and I do, I want to give her stuff. That's the natural expression of love. If you love someone, you want to give them something. In American custom, give and take. They didn't say take and give. All right. It's a give for That's why they say give and take. Yeah. Yeah. Americans just say give me. You know, most Americans are just give me. Um. The attitude of the believers, if you love God, you don't do math on your paycheck. You give him out of a heart of love and gratitude because you want to give. Yeah. And that's that's a good that's a good other thing. What do you what do you donate or give to God that doesn't necessarily we think of giving, we think of you know pulling out your wallet or pulling out a checkbook. Um, maybe giving to God is giving up part of your time for a ministry. You know? 
Yeah. 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 Well, it's funny because um, I love my wife when I don't watch a TV show I want to watch and I watch a chick flick that she does. Now, I hate watching them, but you know what? If I love her, I don't want to do those things that right bring joy to her heart to make her happy. Either watching it with her or you just let her watch. I watch it with her. I went out, you know, I, I was a nice guy. I bought Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which I love. It's a great movie. I love that kind of humor. And I bought um, Sleepless in Seattle. You know, we sat down and we watched Sleepless in Seattle together. You know, um, and she loved that. She was just happy as a clam that we would sit there and watch that movie together. The same song. He loved her. That's yeah. Why, that's why he, he listened to her. That's why he cut the hair. You know, yeah. Power, you know? But yeah, but the whole point is, if you love someone, you give them. And and that well, that. And and yeah. <laughs> that's what it says in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. You know, it says if you fall in love, don't. It's a bad thing. You know, that's interesting. You gotta understand the British kind of humor there. You know. But, but the whole point here is that Paul's saying the churches in Macedonia, when you looked at what they had and what they give, you, you wouldn't necessarily match the two up. Because they gave above and beyond their ability to give. And why did they do that? Generous. Generosity. Generosity. Yeah. The, the, for I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we should receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. They they gave Paul a sum of money. And they said, take this. And Paul says, you can't afford it. And they said, take it. But you can't afford it. Take it. Take it. They wanted Paul to have it. It goes back to the widow and her two mites. What did she give? Everything. Her whole living. And we have to think about that. You know, next time the offering plate goes by you at church, what do you give? Well, what's God laid on your heart to give? How, how much do you love God? Yeah. Yeah. Do I hear twelve? Here, here's and what we're going to do. We're going to find as we work through the the few chapters here some principles for giving. Principle one here is that giving is according to your ability. Not there's no set amount. There's no dollar figure. There's no percentage. It's what God has laid on your heart to give. In some cases, you give him 20%. In some cases, maybe 5%. In some cases, don't worry about the dollar figure. Worry about the heart. Because here's the point. Listen and understand this. 
if you worry about your heart, the amount will take care of itself. Right? If I love my wife, I'm not going to worry as much about the dollar figure of things as I am about the joy that it brings her when I give her something. How much do you love God? These Macedonian people. Now, now compared to Corinth, where were the Macedonians on the socioeconomic scale? They were quite a ways below them. They were the poor churches. And yet they gave liberally. And Paul is talking to Corinthians to say, when I come to you to receive a collection, let me tell you about the Macedonians. And that's not the first time, this is not the last time they gave, right? What happened in, when Paul was in Rome in, the, in prison? Who showed up? No. Philippians chapter 2. Epaphroditus, remember? And where did Epaphroditus come from? Where did he, well, Philippi is where? Macedonia. And what did Epaphroditus bring with him? When he came to see Paul in Rome? A gift. Why is that necessary? Well, basically Paul was under house arrest and he depended on the support of other people to live. And Epaphroditus brought a gift to Paul to minister to him in Rome. And interesting, you know what the name of Epaphroditus means? No? That's, Bar that's Barnabas. It was a gambling term. You'd roll the dice and Epaphras. As you rolled the dice, Epaphras. It was, it was luck. Yes. And in fact, if you look at the wordplay on Epaphroditus, Paul says Epaphroditus rolled the dice with his life. He took a great chance, risk, to come and see me. And he risked his own life to make sure that your gift got to me. He did not consider his own life and almost died, evidently. He was really sick to, to make sure Paul got the ministry. And in fact, there was a group of Christians in the early church who named themselves after Epaphroditus, who took care of the Christians that were in prison. They would come and take care of them. It, the root word Epaphroditus has to do with rolling the dice. Rolling the dice. Yeah. In fact, if you look your your authorized MacArthur Study Bible. There's probably a note to that effect on Epaphroditus. Um, Two fifteen. Um, in verse twenty-five, it talks about Epaphroditus. It meant favorite, here it is. His name was a common Greek one taken from the word originally meant favorite of Aphrodite. Later the name became, mean love or loving. And I think the, the word also means um, when you roll the dice, you take a risk. Um, Epaphroditus risked his life to minister to Paul. To minister to Paul. Um, 
And he says, listen, and not only, verse 5, and not only as we had hope, but they first gave themselves to the Lord, then to us by the will of God. What did they first give to God? Okay. So let's see if we can come up with some giving principles here. What principle, what's the one principle comes out of that? What does God own? God owns it all, right? So, so the first thing to understand about your money, about your giving, is what does God own? All of it. He doesn't own the ten percent. He doesn't own the ten percent, because in fact, in the Old Testament, what was the ten percent really a, a, a picture of? Well, it was a tax, but it was an acknowledgement that God owned all of it. It was to give God back in, in, in an understanding that all of it is God's to start out with. All of it belongs to God. So the first thing to understand when it comes to giving is God owns everything. You get that. That's the one thing you got this class. God owns it all. So when it comes down to say, well, you know, i got to give God my 10%, but I can sort of blow the rest. No, God owns it all. God is the one who gives you the ability to get wealth. And so if God owns it all, what are you? A steward. What are you a steward of? Everything, which is your time, your talent, your treasure, all of it. You're a steward. You're a steward. So when it comes to your ministry, when, when you think about ministry or, or what God has called you to do or gifted you to do, how do you do that? How should you do that? Gladly and willingly, right? Some people may have a gift of carpentry. Maybe you need to donate your time to help people around the church with things that they can't afford to do. Is that giving to God? Is that part of your ministry? Sure it is. Part of the body of Christ, right? There have even been tax collectors I've known that have helped people do their taxes at a reduced price. Oh, man. I, you know what? You know what? You're, you're, you're ahead of more. You are a stubborn person. I'll tell you for being here. That's one thing. You know. Um, but it's not. It's not like it's not like it, it, it's not like you can't gain a living from that. But what is your attitude towards that? You know, if you have an ability to do something, do you donate your time and your energy to help other people? Do you go out of your way to help other people? It might cost you a little bit, right? Do you do that? God owns it all, right? God owns everything. My house is God's. My car is God's. My physical body is God's. The next breath I have is God's. The investments I have are God. Whatever money I have in a bank belongs to him. My ability to think, to reason, to work. My health. And all I am is a steward. And it's not that I have to sit down and mathematically compute 
well, let's see, I love God so much, I'm going to give him 10%, but, you know, I'm just going to ignore and, and do what I want with the rest of it. That's not loving God. God owns it all. It's not a percentage. It's what's your attitude towards it. And Paul is saying they these Macedonians, what did they first do? Well, the first thing they did was give themselves. And after they gave themselves, then what naturally followed? Their money. Their you know, and isn't that the way? You know, I remember when I married Donna. You know, I remember here at the church 27 years ago almost now. We got married and um, I didn't sit down and calculate, you know, now how much is this marriage going to totally cost me over the next 27 years? Start, you know, getting out the calculator and punching in the numbers. Right? What did I do? Well, I gave myself to her, and when I gave myself to her, no price was too big, right? I didn't sit back and think about that. If you give yourself to God, nothing's too much, right? Nothing he asks you to give. So we urge Titus that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. But as you abound in everything in faith and speech and knowledge and all diligence and your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. So giving is what? Selfless. It's an act. It's a giving it. It's giving a, a duty. Is it an obligation? It's a privilege, right? It's a privilege. Think about it. Abound in this grace. I can't. I know I didn't spell privilege right. It's a privilege. I can actually give something back to God. It's not an obligation. It's not a duty. Um, I love my wife so much. I don't say, oh, man, i got to give her a Christmas present. Doggone, I wish I did. No, you love someone. You want to give them something. Because it brings joy to your heart to give. Paul is saying, as you've abounded in all the other gifts, abound in this gift also, the gift of giving, the opportunity, the privilege of giving back to God. And your giving, if you want to think about it in the first few verses here, it's a proportional giving, right? It's proportional to what you have, not what you don't have. The Macedonian churches could not give more than they had, but they gave more than they should have, right? The average financial planner would have called them nuts. Put some of that money in the bank. Save it. Now, should, now as Christians, should you save money? Sure. That's one of the ways that we are a good steward, right? We are a good steward when we save money, all right, for retirement or for a large purchase or something like that. Um, God's not saying go clean out your savings and clean out your retirement accounts and give the money to the church. That's not what he's talking about. Because part of being responsible is saving money. But also when you give, 
it's a it's a freeing kind of thing. I've been married for twenty seven years. You know, I've been alive for going on forty eight now, and um, I've got a lot of junk around. You ever notice that you collect a lot of junk over the years? You know, and I, I you know, you notice that it multiplies when you're not looking. I built a big garage. I said, you know, I have a plenty of, man, I got so much space in this garage. Man, I can't even pull a car into it anymore. All right, because it multiplies. I just turn my back and I look in there the next spring and, wait a minute, where did all this other stuff come from? It just multiplies. When you learn to give, you release that. And you ever notice the more you have, the more you worry about what you got? That's sort of annoying, isn't it? And I remembered, you know, when I was starting out and work, you know, well, if I can just save $100,000, get 100000 in my investment account, in my retirement account, I've got it. No. No. I got to the point where I had that, and you know what? It was not enough. Now i got to get two. Now i got to get three. You know, whatever. the point is the more you have, the more you worry about, what you have. And then you got to buy insurance on all of it, right? No. You do, don't you? No. <laughs> yeah. You got to have house insurance, right? You got to have car insurance, folks. You know, God owns it all. God owns it all. And what God wants you to do, notice this: God wants you to hold on to things loosely, so when He takes it out of your hand. It doesn't. He doesn't have to pry it open. You know, American system have to do. You know, in Korea, for example, Korea is making money. You save it. You know, they multiply. It. So, mm -hmm. so here, not do that. You know, first time coming here, I live apartment and small jump used car, and then I work here. Time. Then later, I saving account a little money on it. Then I buy small house, you know, one step more, you know, and then I buy a small car. I own it. Or it's a monthly payment. Yeah. Four years long, and house is fifteen years long. And after that, and uh, small house sold again. I buy more bigger house mm -hmm. and the more nice car. And then I have five year more car loan. One of the things. Again, yep. One of the things that all of us in here. Yes. The one thing. The one thing in America that that we don't like. Like when Ellie, our German exchange student, came over there, she was amazed. Her dad never had a credit card in his life. In fact, the first credit card he had, he had to get because he was going to come to America and visit us. And he needed a credit card to rent a car over here. Because over there, if you didn't have the cash, you didn't buy it. You know, you want a car? Well, you save the money. You bought a car. You know. Um, folks, we got to ask ourselves, all of us in here have to look in the mirror and say, do I have enough? Do I need a bigger house? Maybe you do. If you do, that's, that's one thing. But to just have a big house, to have a big house, does LeBron need a private bowling alley? I mean, come on, folks. 
Does he need a bowling alley? He got a bowling alley and a movie theater in his place. You know? Yeah. One thing one thing we have to do as Christians. Yeah. One of the things one of the things that as Christians we need to do, we need to look ourselves in the mirror a lot of times and ask, Do I have enough? Do I have enough? And one of the prayers that I've been praying a lot, Lord, help me be content with what I have. Be content with what I have. You know, I, I drive a grand marquee. Why do I drive it? Because I don't like dinky little cars. I'm sorry. I'm not a dinky car lover. All right. But do I need a new one? I got about 100,000 miles on this one. It's a good car. I've kept it. I've maintained it. By the way, part of being a good steward is maintaining what God has given you, taking care of things. You know, and I, I thought about that, and I said, you know, I could go out and get a new car, but, you know, Father, help me be content with the one I have. And so far, he, he has. Now, if there comes a day when I need a new one, all right, fine. But until then, I'm not going to be one of these, you know, like you saying there, wait, I got a four, you know, you, you get one five-year car loan paid off just in time to buy another five-year car loan. You know? I um, I remember the old song, the welfare Cadillac, you know, where, you know, it's raining out and the rain's leaking through the roof, so you can go sit in your Cadillac and stay dry in the rain, you know. That's what I saw with Israel. Yeah. Out there in the desert, they had Mercedes Benz parked out there, and they were living in these tents. Yeah. One of the things as Christians we need to do, and this this is something we we really need to work on. It, it goes along with the subject giving. Is learn to be content with what God's given us. It's not wrong to have something nice. All right. I broke down, and I I I admit I did buy a plasma TV. I broke down and bought one. You know. Um, I'm not in hock for it, I'll tell you that. I don't, you know, like Yee says, you know, the, the, the payments and all that. I got a good deal on it, but, you know, it, it's all right to have something nice. But, you know, that's not my life. No, Your life is not wrapped up in that. You know. Um, for example, I'm sorry, I'm No, go ahead. My customer, the dietary customer. You know, they bring the shirts, five shirts and pants. Everywhere on it, not very nice luxury. So I think he's poor. He's a million millionaire. Yeah. I'm surprised. Yeah. They <laughs> said, "What? This is uh, you know too on it, too old. Why don't you buy a new one?" I just throw. Still okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, but it's luxury. It's very fancy. But I bring coat. Some lady come in. This one is a, is a sock. He's saving it. It's $1,000. Be careful, Ukrainian. Yeah. And then I look at her, you know. And she goes and gets in her little VW that's rusted out. And, yeah, you know, 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, what's amazing? What's amazing is you know I, you know I, I find myself in San Francisco down there looking at some of these stores. You know, it's like why would anybody buy that? You know, um, but but here, stop and think about it. Isn't contentment a great gift from God? You know, and it's not it's not that God's up in heaven not wanting to be chintzy, right? Because God loves us, and part of love is giving, but be content with what God has given you. Live within your means. One of the principles here, I believe, that we violate as a church is that most of the people in the church are so up to their debt and eyeballs, they can't give. I love that commercial. Stanley Johnson. I love that. You know, we are so much in debt, we can't give. And when you look at the statistics on debt, you've got people coming to your church that are thousands of dollars in credit card debt, thousands at 15, 20, some of them 30% interest, you know, and it's like, what's wrong with this? And then, you know, and then the pastor says, you know, try to raise money for some people can't give because they don't have it. And that's what Paul says, be diligent to work so that you may take care of your own needs and have something left over to help other people. And again, it's not wrong that that like you buy a you have a house mortgage. It's, it's almost impossible to buy a house for cash or or something like that. But but don't let debt control you. Our problem is we live in a country where debt controls us. People are controlled by their debt. And when there's a downturn in the economy, everybody's thrown out of work, and it's now it's all the, all of a sudden it's the government's fault that they're not, you know. And it's like, folks, you know, you make bad financial decisions. And that's one thing I have to admit that that some of the, like Korea and Japan and some other countries have over on America is they have a mentality of saving over there. We have a we have a mentality that if you make it you spend it, you know. And and usually and I think somebody said that the average American spends a dollar ten for every dollar they make. Now think about that. A dollar ten. For every dollar they make. Yeah. I was talking to my neighbor, and you know, and he he was we talk, He's a he's a mortgage guy, and you know, Thomas said, "Yeah, it's really nice. I like my house. I got a real good interest rate, and I don't have to pay PMI." And he says, "You don't have to pay PMI. Wow. Well, PMI, if you owe eighty percent or more, if you finance eighty percent or more on your house, you got to pay PMI, private mortgage insurance." So I don't have PMI, and he was amazed because he says everybody's got PMI. And the reason why everybody's got PMI because they buy a house bigger than they need. What you do is you go in, you go in there, and they say, "Well, this is how much house you can afford." You know, when I went in first and said, "Well, you can afford this much house," I said, "Good night. I'm not going to need that big a thing." You know, there's just two of us. I don't need something like that. No, I go Baltimore with my friend. I visit his house. He's a millionaire. And then uh, I go to his house. Big house. His child already grown up. They are only the couple, husband and wife. I go inside. Everything turn off the heating, everything. They blanket on it. Everything watch TV. <laughs> so I said, what happened? Because I'm going to save the gas. <laughs> That's why I say, I think this is jail. This is not happiness, you know? Yeah. It's not peace. 
I want a small house. I want a million company. I want a comfortable where I, I stay. I better. What you need to do? This is true story. Yeah. You need to ask all of us in here. All of us in here need to ask ourselves: Do we have enough? And when we have enough, let's be content with what we have. I don't need filet mignon every night. Now I do like a good filet mignon. I'm sorry, but you don't need to eat that every night. Be simple. Learn to live simple. Learn to be content with with little. You know, and it's not that you know, like you say there. You know, you you turn the heat down. You walk around in blankets and you know something like that. You know, it's it's reasonable. But our problem is in the church today is you have people bought in the mentality of the world. The more debt you have, the better off you are, folks. That's not the way God wants you to live because now you're in financial bondage. And when you're in financial bondage, you can't give because you don't have it. You owe it to the credit card company. You owe it to the mortgage company. You owe it to the finance company. That's why January, February is slow month. Christmas everybody, time. Everybody, 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 everybody. January is saved up. Mm-hmm. They, they don't have money. I'm sorry, I went over. But we're going to keep this concept of giving because what Paul is talking about with these Corinthian believers is learning to be content, learning to live within your means, and learning to be generous. Because when you live within your means and you don't have that money going to the mortgage payment and the car payment and the credit cards, you have money to give. You have money to be generous with. So, all right. Father, thanks for this day and for being here. Help us to ponder and think about what we've learned. And we just thank you for your grace in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.